Uh, allow me to introduce myself, because I, I know I'm usually the guy who's not up in this segment. I'm usually the guy that's over here a little bit, plucking on some strings and singing some melodies. So uh, my name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. Um, and particularly, I oversee uh, the stuff that's related to our purpose statement or our vision statement at Grace, which is know it, live it, give it away. So it is the gospel. It is the story of Jesus. And so I have the absolute honor to uh, be able to serve all of you in our community and resourcing you and pointing you back always, and my hope is to do that even tonight, uh, to Jesus himself and make him famous. So again, thank you guys so much for being here. Really appreciate that you, appreciate that you would take the time out to spend here this evening with us. Um, if you have been around uh, Grace <clears throat> the past three or four weeks, uh, probably since uh, Christmas Eve, you know that we have been in a series that we have been calling Jesus Come and See. And so basically in this series, we have been dead set on kind of one thing. And that one thing is we all want to come to this series and take the misconceptions or the presuppositions or the assumptions that we have about who Jesus is. And we just want to extend the invitation to journey together to discover from the Bible uh, who Jesus really is and why Jesus was so significant back in the first century when he lived and walked and talked here on the earth and why also he is so significant and important to us today. And so we've been doing that because we know that a lot of the misconceptions that we have about Jesus, if we're going to pursue the real Jesus, we need to deal with some of those misconceptions, uh, kind of take them off to the side and dispense of them. But we know that a lot of times those assumptions that we have are based from our experiences in the past. And a lot of those experiences are connected to figures of influence, maybe, uh, that have been in our lives who have said something about who Jesus is to us. So we're talking about moms, dads, we're talking about college roommates or professors, friends, etc. And so really what we want to do in this series is we want to take a look at one firsthand eyewitnesses account of who Jesus was, a somebody who encountered Jesus while he was here on the earth and experienced him and what he did and what he said in a firsthand basis. And so as a result, we've been looking at this one guy named Matthew who writes a gospel. A gospel is simply in the New Testament. It's a story of Jesus. He writes this gospel, and that gospel is essentially a documentation of Matthew's personal experiences with Jesus. So really we are saying that as we uh, have explored the gospel of Matthew in this series, that this is in itself an invitation that Matthew extends to us 2,000 years later, that we can come to his eyewitness testimony and we could see the real Jesus, Jesus for who he is, and dispense with some of those misconceptions that we have. And so we have been doing that, and tonight we are going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you brought your Bibles with uh, you this evening, or if you have it on your device, your tablet, or whatever, um, I want to encourage you to start making your way out to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, we're going to continue in this conversation. And what we're going to experience today is not merely something that Jesus did, but it's very much something that Jesus teaches or something that Jesus says. So it's uh, a little bit different, Jesus in his own words. So as you're making your way out there, um, I would also say if you don't have <clears throat> a Bible that you call your very own or you don't have it here with you, or maybe you dropped it in the snow and you're like, not picking that up, right? Um, you can use one of the Bibles under the seats in front of you. Um, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 will be on page 677 in those Bibles. And then lastly, if you do not have a Bible to call your very own, 
take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. It's just our way of, again, saying thank you. And also, it's just revealing, hopefully, a little bit of our commitment that we want to experience the real Jesus, and we know we can find that in God's Word in the Bible. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Now, before we actually dive in there, um, I know all that suspense. I've got you up there now. But what I want to do is I want to begin our conversation, uh, hopefully with a little bit of uh, an audience participation piece. Um, and so my hope in engaging in this exercise would be to kind of set a little bit more of the scene of what's going on behind the scenes as we approach Matthew 5, 17 through 20 and what Jesus says there. And so here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sketch for you, okay, two different types of people And then after I sketch those two different types of people for you, I want you to be honest and raise your hand when I call out each in turn to see which one you really are. Is that okay? Can we do that? Can we do that? Okay, so I'm going to sketch two different types of people. The first type of person that I want to kind of deliver to you is this. How many of you would say that you uh, tend to have or you, um, you would categorize yourself as having the tendencies of a rule breaker? Okay, so a rule breaker. Now, this is the kind of person who, if you're walking down the sidewalk, you're walking on the side of the road, and you encounter a sign that says, keep off the grass, whereas two moments before, you had no thought in your mind about the grass or that plot of land over there, and yet as soon as you saw that sign, your legs were magnetically drawn over to the grass, right? So if you are a rule breaker, it's likely that your favorite um, event or moment in American history is the Boston Tea Party. It's the Boston Tea Party because you're thinking, man, if we can't have our tea untaxed, nobody's going to have any tea. We're going to toss it in the harbor, which never made any sense to me, but whatever. We're Americans. That's what we do, apparently. So, and if you are a rule breaker, this is one of my favorite, your, your mantra is like, rules were made to be broken. YOLO, right? You only live once. And if you are a rule breaker, you constantly have that uh, inner monologue of Mel Gibson in Braveheart just cycling through your head like, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom! I know that Mel Gibson doesn't sound like that, just, it's whatever. So, okay, so that would be the rule breaker. Now, the other category is the rule follower. So some of you have the tendencies of a rule follower. Now, let me sketch this out for you a little bit. The rule followers are all the accountants in the room. Enough said. Now, the rule followers are precision, precise, everything in its proper order, all the columns in the Excel spreadsheet that you live your life by are ordered, all the rows are ordered, and there is data. there are data points that are plugged into every single cell. It's meticulous. If you are a rule follower, as I was describing the rule breaker, you just bowed your head and started shaking it because you know you know that if the world were filled with, with rule breakers, it would be a place of complete chaos and insanity. And you know this. Now, you are a rule follower if you get that sense of like deep, abiding satisfaction when you have come to a full and complete stop at a stop sign, right? Even though you know that there is not a cop car anywhere close to that intersection. Okay, so how many of you, these two, two different groups, be honest, okay, how many of you would classify yourselves in the latter category, the rule follower, the rule follower? Yeah, we got some rule followers. 
You and me both, everybody. I'm a rule follower. So, all right, so the, uh, other, you can put your hands down. How about rule breaker? Anybody for a rule breaker? Yeah. Oh, wow, I got double hands up back there. That's amazing. Which uh, I, I could tell, you can put your hands down. I could tell that there were some of you that didn't answer. That means you're a rule breaker because you just wanted to break the rule, right? That's exactly what you wanted to do. So now the question then becomes, all right, why did we undertake this exercise? Why did we go through this? Well, you see, I think there is something uh, really profound about the way we interact with rules and laws and commandments. There's something really profound that says a lot about the human experience. You see, I think many of us know this to be true if we really start to think about it a little bit, but rules don't exist for themselves. Rules are actually the product of what we think is most important, what we value the most. So I like how this one guy said it. He defined rules as this. He said the rules are the standards of expected behavior, right? What you should do and what you should not do. They're the standards of expected behavior, but I like how he continues on. He says, these standards come from a vision of how we think everyone in the world, right? Ourselves included, of how we think everyone in the world ought to function. The world should be this way. I have a vision of an ordered world or a world that is good, right, and perfect. So out of this ordered world, out of that vision comes standards of expected behavior. So the standards of expected behavior that come from a vision of how we think everyone in the world ought to function. And so what this says is that the way you interact, the way you and I interact with the rules says something or reveals something about what we truly believe. What we truly believe in will manifest, manifest itself in how we interact with the rules. Now, case in point, I think we know this to be true in a variety of spots in life, but I think, especially for a lot of us, we know this to be true from our past church experiences, don't we? So listen, if you are a rule breaker, there's a good chance that your past church experience was filled with, you just thought that church was about do nots and can'ts. You thought church was about the Ten Commandments and keeping those meticulously. You thought that church was about making sure that you showed up and you had regular weekend attendance. And so as a result, you look back at that experience and you feel like that was so inhibiting, I was always being told what to do. So for you, freedom looks like breaking all those rules. And conversely, if you tend to be a rule follower, maybe from your past church experiences, maybe you were connected with someone who was supposed to be a spiritual authority in your life and invest in you and help you grow. And maybe that person was more of the rule breaker persuasion. And they were so careless with that responsibility that you had to bear the weight and the pain of them abandoning you. And now... Church is all about playing by the rules because you don't want someone else who you're investing in to feel the same way. So I think rules are profound. The way we interact with them is profound. It tells us what we believe. And this is not just something that is true for us in a modern day. This is something that is true of every generation in human history, including the tendencies of the generation that Jesus is speaking to, the Jewish people that Jesus is speaking to here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And so with some of this in mind, with these idea of rules, we are going to see what Jesus has to say about the rules, whether we're supposed to keep the rules 
or whether we are supposed to break the rules. And specifically, the question that people back in his day were asking is this. What do we do with the 613 commandments, the laws, the rules, that our religious leaders pulled out of the Old Testament? What do we do with those things? Do we have to keep them meticulously, or should we break them? And this is where we can dive right into what Jesus is saying as he addresses this very issue. It's about rules. Should we follow them, or should we break them? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and they teach others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit deeper and unpack some of what Jesus is saying here. So right off the bat, I think those of you who are rule breakers in the room, you know that you're on the stand, don't you? (laughs) Right off the bat, because Jesus launches out and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You don't lead a statement with a phrase like do not think unless you know full well that there are those who are in earshot of you who are misunderstanding your aims and your intentions. So rule breakers are up first, and look at what Jesus says, and I think it's important, this this word abolish here is a pivotal word for understanding a little bit more of what Jesus is saying to this crowd. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now this word abolish is good enough in our English translations, it's fine, and it gives us kind of the sense of what Jesus is doing here. But there's actually some um, imagery that's associated with this word abolish that's helpful. And also um, with the way that this word is used throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, if you were going to look up in a Bible dictionary, the word that lies behind this term abolish here in Matthew 5.17, you would discover that it is the Greek word katalusai. I'm going to say it again and I'm going to ask you to say it. Katalusai. Catalusa. You got it, man. You guys are awesome. See, seven o'clock is the best. No, or not. So Catalusa here. So Jesus says, do not think that I have come to Catalusa, the law or the prophets. Again, if you were just to look this word up in a Bible dictionary, you might find the following entries. You might find it means to destroy or to demolish, which seems to make sense with what Jesus is saying. You would also find another entry that Catalusa means to make something invalid or to make something unusable. But, again, if you were to look at all the places where this word katalusai appears through the rest of the Bible, the vast majority of instances of katalusai means something like this. To lodge or lodging. To lodge or lodging. So, in other words, if you were going to make the 22-hour drive from Cleveland to Denver which I've made 19, by the way. (laughs) But if you were going to make the 22-hour drive from Cleveland to Denver, and if you were going to stop in the middle in St. Louis to rest for the night, 
you would lodge or you would catalusi in St. Louis for the evening. Now, I will give you 10 to 1 odds right now that I know exactly what you're thinking because it's what I was thinking. What in the world (laughs) does lodging have to do with what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 17? How does this connect? Well, and the response is, or the answer is, uh, again, there's something going on in culture in the first century for Jewish people that would have been readily understood that we might miss. You see, if in the first century, in ancient cultures, when you were setting out on a journey, if you had a long journey, um, often what you would do is you would have uh, oxen or some other really strong animals, and they would be hitched up or they would yoke up to a cart And that cart would uh, have all the essentials that you would need for the journey, all your stuff to get from point A to point B. And so the idea is that when your oxen um, were carrying this heavy burden or this heavy weight, when you stopped to lodge for the night, you weren't necessarily just thinking about your family and how they needed to recuperate or get more energy for the next leg of the journey. You also had to think about that for your Dodge minivan. Because your Dodge minivan was not a motor vehicle. Your Dodge minivan was your oxen or this other strong animal. So basically, if we press Catalusi all the way back, when you would stop for the night, the thing that you would do is you'd take that yoke and that hitch that that yoke was onto the cart that carried all your possessions, and you would Catalusi, you would unhitch or unharness the heavy burden and the heavy weight that the oxen was carrying for the journey. So that's how it came to be known or understood as lodging or to lodge. Now, if you are a person in the first century and you're hearing and you're approaching Jesus with this, think about what Jesus is saying here, what what it might do to you, right? Because again, if you were in the first century, if you were a Jewish person, your religious leaders, your Pharisee types, your teachers of the law types, your scribe types, you see these words uh, populate the Gospels often, you would have uh, followed their understanding or their demand that those 613 commandments of the law, like you had to follow those ritualistically, like rigidly, you couldn't break one, or if you did, you'd need to sacrifice a goat or something. So you were under this kind of yoke or this burden of the teachers of the law. So you were demanded, or they demanded of you that you keep all these 613 commandments if you wanted to be properly related to God. And so now we see that if, if you hear about this prophet, this provocative guy named Jesus, who's walking around and he's often confronting those religious leaders on those very things, you might think that, oh, I want to listen to this guy. I want to hear what he has to say. Because maybe, just maybe, he's going to make an easier way for me. Maybe he's going to, like the oxen on the cart, maybe he's going to unhitch this heavy yoke, this heavy burden that I feel like I have to carry. Maybe he's going to give me the rest. Maybe he's going to tell me it's okay to break some of these rules, to unhitch myself from these rules. But notice, as we continue here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus actually, he doesn't say, yeah, that's okay. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually ratchet this thing up a little bit. Or at least on the surface, that's what we think he's doing. I mean, look, when he follows it up, he says, truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, 
Now, heaven and earth was a figure of speech for basically the entire cosmos, the world and everything outside it, all the starry hosts of heaven. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, Jesus is saying, the universe as you know it will collapse and implode in on itself before the smallest speck of ink from those 613 commandments will pass away. And so now you're thinking, man, Jesus, you must be saying that the way we should look at the rules, the way we should look at the law, the way we should look at the Old Testament and what it says, man, if I want to follow you, that means I have to have a committed, undying, rigorous, resolute commitment to achieving the law. Like if I want to be properly related to God, I got to keep all these rules. Now, I can see you, because there's not many of us tonight, right? I can see you, especially you rule followers in the room, I can see you kind of sitting back smugly, reclining in your chairs a little bit like, yeah, eat that rule breaker, right? It is about the Excel spreadsheet, isn't it? But not so fast if that's you. I would caution you because Jesus in this passage actually does not let you off the hook. And uh, if, even if we were going to go outside of this passage, if you looked at the four different accounts that are found within our Bible about the life of Jesus, these would be the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you go outside this passage and you look throughout the Gospels and the stories of Jesus, more often than not, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders for how ridiculously anal they are in making sure that they meticulously keep every single fine point of the Old Testament law. Now, we don't have time to necessarily go into some of these examples, and if you want to read them, they're found in places like Matthew 12, Matthew 15, and uh, Mark 7. So Jesus is doing, he's confronting the religious leaders so frequently on their ridiculous interpretations of what it means to follow the law. So much so that like in Matthew 12, if you were going to go there and you were going to read it, in Matthew 12, Jesus is prepared to heal someone on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. It came from the Old Testament law. There was one day, a Saturday, that you had to rest on that day. And so Jesus is prepared to heal someone on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders say, nope, you can't do that. And Jesus is almost perplexed and confused, and what he says thereafter gives you the impression that he's thinking, "What? so you're going to allow human life to go uncared for just so it could be said that you kept a rigid rule. A human life would go uncared for, just so it could be said that you kept a rule before God. Now, truth be told, more often than not, Jesus is railing against this mentality of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, but we actually don't need to go outside of this passage to see that Jesus is doing the same here. See, down here in verse 20, what does he say? He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, now righteousness would have been like your upright living, it would have been conformity to the Old Testament law. So he says, for unless, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Now keep in mind, the Pharisees are the most strict adherents to the Old Testament law that history has arguably ever known. They went out of their way to make sure that they were keeping the commandments. But Jesus says, man, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And if it doesn't, you will certainly not, certainly not 
enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you certainly won't have the kind of relationship with God that you long for. And so Jesus provocatively says, you see the jab here. The jab here against the mentality of the rule follower. You see, if you have to go above and beyond the righteousness of those guys who kept every single nook and cranny of the law, man, what does that say about those who do equally as good as the Pharisees? What is it Jesus is saying? That's not enough. All your effort and all your striving, it's not adequate. It is not enough. And this is where many of us who uh, read the Bible's teaching about salvation as not being by works, but by God's grace alone, we would nod our heads in agreement here, wouldn't we? Because we know, and Jesus is saying here, that no amount of sweat, no amount of striving, no amount of an earning mentality will ever bring us anywhere close to where we need to be to be properly related to God. And so we're dropped off here at the end of this passage, and I don't know about you, but I raise the question, okay, Jesus, so which is it, right? Which one? Should I rule keep or should I rule follow? Should I, should I rule keep to the degree where I can find a relationship with God? Or should I rule break in the sense of finding the rest that I'm longing for? The rest from the requirement, like I can't keep all this stuff. Now, I think some of the confusion that we see and tend to have here, myself included, uh, comes from not necessarily from uh, Jesus misrepresenting himself in this passage, but more so from our misunderstanding of what Jesus is really saying when he uses key words and terms in this passage. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think there is something here in this first verse that so many of us could, ease, myself included, we just easily gloss over that is so important for Jesus' assumptions about what he's saying. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish, and it's this phrase right here, the law or the prophets. The law or the prophets. So if you're like me, and I'm just blowing through this passage, I'm thinking this. Here's my interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish, or catalusi, right, the rules or the people God sent to tell me that I need to do the rules, right? But do not think that I have come to abolish the rules or the people God sent to tell me that I need to do all these rules or meet all these requirements. But actually, there's something even, just in this little phrase right here, that even our English translations bring out that will so totally skip so often. And is, it, is there anything about this phrase that might tip you off even in the English? Anything? Anybody? If you said capital, right? These are capital letters that introduce these two concepts. So this is not just some random array of abstract ideas. This is like a proper noun. It's a proper, it's naming something that Jesus and his hearers in the first century would have clicked into right away. So let's actually bring this out here. Let's, let's play around with this phrase, the law or the prophets, okay? So the law. 
There is a Hebrew word that lies way back in the back of this that supports this term law that we find here. And it's this Hebrew word, Torah. You could say that, can't you? Torah, right? Some of you may have heard this term. Now, Torah could actually be understood in three different senses to a first century Jewish person, as Jesus says this. Uh, The first sense is Torah stood for the 613 laws that their religious leaders pulled out of the Old Testament and mandated that you follow. So it could mean that. But Torah also was a word that simply means or meant instruction. In other words, if you wanted to uh, build something and you wanted to build it right but you didn't know how to get there, you would simply, you have somebody come alongside you and Torah you, they would give you the instruction you needed to meet the goal. But this third sense, this is the sense that Jesus intends in this passage. And it's brought out by this English translation by capitalizing the L in law. And Torah also meant this. Torah was the set of five books at the beginning of the Old Testament. And those books were things that recounted the world's origins. Man, that this is a place that God originally created as so very good. That he poured out his love and creativity and his desire to bless him before us and infused it into this amazing world. This Tarak also tells the story of the great potential of human beings as God's image bearers. That God created humankind and gave them this tremendous privilege of reflecting him and his character and his goodness in ways that nothing else in all of creation could mirror or mimic. That Torah, in this story of the first five books of the Old Testament, also recounts, man, the tragedy of humanity's rebellion and sin against God, that though we as human beings were created with amazing purpose to reflect and partner with God to spread his love and goodness throughout all of creation, man, we reject that. We choose our own definitions of good and evil, and we experience the tragedy and the pain of that rebellion, that though we were once supposed to be intimately connected with God in a relationship, now we find ourselves opposed to him and at a place of hostility and enmity toward him. But for inasmuch as this story of Torah in the Old Testament, these first five books, speaks of the tragedy, it also speaks of the beginnings of the promise, of a promise that God makes, and in his plan, that God would commit to one day launch a plan of rescue for humanity, that God would rescue us, you and me too, from the disaster of the world that we create when we reject God's instruction. We go on, this word prophets is a Hebrew word, nevi'im. It could very well mean people who speak on behalf of God and does over and over in the Bible. And yet, when it's taken in its proper sense, it refers to a collection of Old Testament writings that what? They continue to chronicle God's dealings with people who are caught in a vicious cycle of sin and idolatry. Such that we can say, if we think about the law and the prophets the way that Jesus did as he uses it in Matthew 5, 17, 
Man, Jesus is not just saying, you know what, I haven't come to abolish all these rules and the people who tell you to do them. No. Jesus looks at the law or the prophets, and this is what he's referring to. It's not the rules. It's the story that the Old Testament is telling about what a good God plans to do with and for a sinful humanity. It's the story of what a good God plans to do with and for a sinful humanity. See, that story in the Old Testament tells again of this cancer of sin that exists in every single human person and that there's a cycle that this sin produces of that rebellion and that despair and that frustration that goes over and over and that we should see not as just something that was restricted to the people who lived in the Old Testament period but continues in that cycle and lands in our laps today. That though God created us and intends us to partner with him in relationship, man, that sin and rebellion shows up in every single one of our lives. The story of Torah, the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Law and the Prophets is not just an Old Testament deal. It is telling you and me something about what is true of us when we are born into this world, what is true of us before God accomplishes his rescue plan in our lives. And in the Old Testament, that story continues to remind us not only that that wickedness and that rebellion exists in us, but that it cycles so often and repetitively that God, within that Old Testament story, makes a decision. He says, enough is enough. I'm going to, I am going to work out my plan of rescue and redemption. And I am going, there's going to come a day, there's going to come a point in time where I'm going to act definitively and in a groundbreakingly new way to wrest humanity from that cycle of sin and rebellion. And in the Old Testament story, God calls out these guys called the prophets, and he predicts just what he's going to do to wrest us from that cycle. It's everywhere in the prophets, but it's in one particular place, this guy Ezekiel, who is an Old Testament prophet. Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, God says this amazing thing, and he says it best about what he plans to do for humanity that's mired in sin. And this is what Ezekiel says, what God says through Ezekiel. What is he going to do? Well, the way I'm going to break the cycle, God says, is I'm going to give you not more rules. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to take the burden of the rules off you. That has nothing to do with it. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart, meaning new desires, a new motivation to do what we could not do before in our rebellion. God says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to put a new spirit. A new spirit is like the breath of life, the ability that we have to live the kind of life God wants for us. He's like, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you, and I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone. That heart that was hard and callous and I could do nothing with. He's going to remove that, and he's going to give humanity a heart of flesh, something that's pliable, moldable, can be shaped into a reflection of who God is and all his character. And then God says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put my spirit, my Holy Spirit in you and what is going to transpire as a result of that spirit and that new heart being in you? Well, then I'll move you to follow my decrees. And then you're gonna be careful at that point to keep my laws. 
Ezekiel says that what God is going to do that is so radical is not change the rules. He's not going to tell you you need to work harder to get them done. He's not going to release you from them. He's going to give you a new heart. Now, some might ask the question, and I do as well, like, okay, new heart, that's great conceptually, but what does that mean? What, what's he talking about there? And I think the best way that I can uh, create an analogy is to think of this idea of God giving us a new heart uh, in, in terms of exercise, okay, exercise. So for many of us, we realize and we know that if you want to live a physically healthy lifestyle, you need to eat well, but you also need to exercise. Now, exercise is a lot like the rules, isn't it? There are certain things and disciplines that you engage in. If you follow the rules of exercise, it will lead you down the path to a healthy lifestyle, right? You'll, you'll achieve physical health as you continue to follow the rules, technically, of exercise. And most of us know this full well. And you would think that if the rules themselves had enough power to get us to physical health, that we'd actually get to physical health, <laughs> right? Now, the rules say that you should do this. If you want to be healthy, you exercise. And some of us have even had doctors that have looked us in the eye and given us another rule or another command. And they've said, if you don't start exercising, you are going to die. But those rules, those commands, those pointed fingers don't give us the ability to exercise, do they? <laughs> this is the reason why so many of us make New Year's resolutions every passing year that are related to physical fitness and health. And then what psychologists say is it usually takes three weeks to like actually engage in a habit. It's why that by the time three weeks of the new year rolls around, the people who resolved that they were going to exercise this year have fallen off the wagon. <laughs> and we can actually see this plenty of times in our own life, in our own story, myself included. And by the way, if that's you, if you resolved to uh, uh, exercise in the new year, um, that three weeks is Monday. Just checking, just just reminding you of all that, right? So I know this was true for, for my own story with exercise. Like I just, it was never clicking for me. I knew what I was supposed to do. It never clicked. I remember even all the way back in middle school, just hating the idea of exercise. I don't know if you guys had this, but when I was in middle school, every year they would do these presidential fitness challenges. So it was all about so many push-ups and you'd get a certificate or so many pull-ups and you'd get a sit-ups, suicides, you know, running back and forth on the basketball court and all that kind of stuff. And so I just remember hating exercise because I couldn't. I just, I'd be up on that pull-up bar and chin up and I'd be like, come on, come on, baby, come on, come on. And I just couldn't get there. And I just remember being... It would have been bad enough that I couldn't do a single pull-up, but what made it worse is that I'm looking down the line and Palmer's down there, you know. <clears throat> oh, yeah, hey, what's up, Seth? How's it going? She's ripping these things out like it's her job. So I'm, it's just so frustrating, and I couldn't get one out, and I hated it in middle school, and it, that, that trajectory continued in my life throughout my 20s. Like, again, I knew that I should. I knew that I was supposed to. But all throughout my 20s, I had just these fits and starts. Like, I'm going to exercise. And then literally like two or three days later, I'm eating a bag of Cheetos in front of my favorite TV, TV show. So this happened all the way throughout my 20s. And then I hit 30, and two things happened when I hit 30. The first is... I hit 30, right? Something changes in your metabolism when you hit 30. But the second thing is I remember talking with a couple friends of mine who were fitness coaches, and they begin to share, oh man, you could tell, their heartfelt passion about the importance 
of what it means to be physically fit, not just to do the exercises to do the exercises, but to see the exercises as promoting something that was beyond exercise, the goal of physical fitness. And I tell you, something happened when I turned 30 and I had that conversation and realized that I turned 30. I got a new heart toward physical fitness. I got a new spirit, a new energy, a, a, a new motivation, a new desire to see beyond just the rules and to see what was possible. Something clicked. And I can only attribute it to, it's kind of like a new heart for exercise, such that for the last eight years, somehow radically what was not possible in the 30 years prior has been consistent. It's been locked in. Now, granted, there are days where I wake up and I don't feel like exercising, right? So it does not mean that the new heart always equates to feeling like it. There are days where I wake up, I don't want to. And some of those days, I do still. And some of those days, I fall back into old habits. I don't. I don't exercise. But by and large, the consistency of my life, the change of the new heart toward exercise, man, I discovered something. I discovered that the difference between a have to and a get to with regard to exercise is not about the rules. It's not about working harder toward the rules or casting the rules off. The difference is getting a new Heart, a new heart. When we think about it this way, and we go back to what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, he says, I have not come to catalusi. I've not come to, to ease the burden off of you. That's not my goal. He says, I've come to fulfill them. And again, if we're talking about the law or the prophets as being the story of God's rescue, the story of God giving us a new heart. What Jesus says here is not that he comes to keep all the rules. Jesus says that the story God is writing about a possibility of a rescue to end the cycle of sin and rebellion in our lives, to get a new heart, to get a new spirit so that we can interact with the rules rightly, man, he says, that's me. That happens when you come to me. This word fulfill means to bring a story to its resolution. That the transformative power that God offers so that we can live differently and be properly related to him can only come when we look at what, who Jesus is and what he's done and when we hand our lives over to him and commit to follow him, to be his disciples. When that happens, Jesus says, that story about a new heart and new spirit, that's yours. That's yours. For my followers, Jesus says, that is yours. And again, we, you might not feel it right away. And there might be days where you're not really into following me, but I tell you what. I'm going to give you every resource that is at my disposal to get you from where you are to where God wants you to be. Full and unadulterated relationship with the God of the universe. Jesus says, you want to break the cycle of sin and rebellion in your life? Look no further. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And then, 
the rules are reoriented. It makes more sense because the new heart is motivated to want to love God with everything we have, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the band is going to come up here right now. And uh, what I want to do is I just want to address two audiences in the room. And we're going back to some of these ideas of the rule breaker and the rule follower too within these two audiences. Uh, Some of you are here tonight and uh, you would say that you are not a follower of Jesus. Uh, Maybe you're investigating Jesus or maybe you're a little opposed to him or maybe you're still buying into the version of Jesus that's a hand-me-down Jesus from the figures of influence in your past, you still have, you're still hanging on to those misconceptions, those misunderstandings. I would just appeal to you, whether you're a rule breaker or a rule follower, if you're investigating Jesus or if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, Jesus has come to not say that you need to work harder to earn salvation. You need to work harder to earn a relationship with God. You need to earn it. Neither is he saying that he is going to abandon you to try to figure it out on your own. Jesus extends an invitation to you, and he says, trust me. Trust that I'm the fulfillment of the story that God is writing to rescue you from your sin and rebellion. Trust me. Grab a hold of me, and I'll give you a new heart. Again, you might not feel it all the time, but you're going to be able to go on what you know rather than on what you feel. That I am going to, Jesus says, give you the ability to love God with all that you are and to serve and love others as a result of being properly related to who God is. So Jesus extends an invitation to you to come and see him as the one who offers you a new motivation to give you new desires to take out that heart of stone that was hostile to God and put within you a heart that God can work with. A God who loves you to work with that heart. So that's the invitation. All you gotta do is say yes to Jesus, commit to follow him. That's it. And for those of you who call yourselves follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus like myself, I think it's so easy to, in the day-to-day grind, It's so easy to just drift back into our tendencies with the rules, isn't it? Easy to say, I just need to break the rules or I just need to work harder to follow the rules. It's so easy to drift back in those tendencies. But I would just submit to you and as as, as the band plays and as we sing together, I would just submit to you that the answer to drift is not about casting off restraint. Neither is it about working harder to try to love Jesus. Man, the answer is to recultivate and rekindle a love for Jesus and an appreciation and a thankfulness for what he's done. And here's the thing, if you follow Jesus, you already have the resource that you need to have that love rekindled. See, because when you choose to follow Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, this breath of new life, and this spirit lives in you, and he communicates the reality of Jesus' nearness to you. And so maybe I would just ask you tonight as we sing, if that's you, if you've drifted into either one of those categories again, just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, please, just rekindle my love for Jesus. Because it's not about keeping Jesus' rules. It's about pursuing him with a new heart and realizing that the rules he does want us to keep, because Jesus has commandments, by the way, that the rules he does want us to keep are good and they're amazing. And they're motivated out of a heart that wants to be obedient to God.
Now, I would also say this, this. The Holy Spirit is not just in individual followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is often talked about in the community of people who follow Jesus. So that we together, as we're looking as to how we might exercise the new heart that Jesus gives us, that we can exercise that together in growing maturity and looking more and more like Jesus. So maybe for some of you, it's asking the Holy Spirit for that rekindled passion to pursue Christ with everything you've got. But maybe for some of you, it's getting into biblical community. It's getting into a life group, surrounding yourself with other new-hearted people who are pursuing the same thing that you are, love for Jesus and responding in obedience to what God has commanded us as his followers. Bottom line is, whether you're a rule breaker or a rule follower, Christ has not come to unhitch those things. He has not come to make you work harder for them. He has come to give you a new heart and a new spirit within all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, uh, that your plan of salvation is amazing, that you look down on our brokenness and you communicated through prophets like Ezekiel that you were gonna act in a radically profound way and give us a new heart and a new spirit. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to be the fulfillment of that, the resolution of our story, the, the culmination of your plan to rescue us. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to the Father, that you love the Father so much that you would come down and die for us and that you would be raised to life again by that very same Father so that we could, when we hitch our story up to yours, we could find the new heart and find the freedom that you want for us. And Holy Spirit, we just ask you right now to do the work that only you can do, to cultivate in us the reality of a new heart, that we would be motivated and our desires would be inclined toward your direction, Father. And we just ask these things in the name of Jesus, the one who fulfills the story that breaks the cycle of sin and rebellion. We say it in his name. Amen.